if you look at the science around how you build peace, we know that you've got to help people overcome group identification. So when people start to think in groups and they start to judge others based on their group identity, then you're in a bad situation because that allows for group judgments and group punishments. Hi, I'm Dan Crow, a small business owner living in central Illinois, and you're listening to the Vance Crow podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here today. We speak with Professor David Wood, who is a peace negotiator that has traveled to some of the hottest regions in the world, including Libya and Yemen. We sit down to talk about what does it take to get a militia leader to sit down and come to some sort of peaceful resolution? What is going on with the international organizations and who is staffing them up and what sort of impact does that have on the peace process? And we even talk about what's going on in the United States. Is the conflict that is growing between left and right or urban and rural going to result in potentially a violent outcome? This is a fascinating conversation with a person that represents a world that I am deeply enmeshed in, that of negotiations and trying to mediate through conflict. So I hope you really enjoy this. I'm sure many of you will find things in here that you can apply to your regular lives. Before we get to the interview, I'm still taking a few last signups for legacy interviews. This is when you hire me to sit down with a loved one for an hour or an hour and a half to share family stories, to record those family values and the histories that we always want to do with grandma or dad or even just sit down for our own children, but we never seem to have the time. And so what I do is hop on Zoom, or if you're in the St. Louis region, you can come to one of our offices, and we sit down and do this interview to try and capture those things so that you have them to pass along into the future. People have told me that this is one of their most treasured gifts that they've ever given, that it's something that if uh, if there was a fire in their house, they would run in to get it to save it because it's so valuable to them. So if you're interested in finding a very unique gift for a loved one, you can go to store.articulate.ventures and uh, hire me to do a legacy interview with one of your loved ones. We will only have a certain amount that we can get done before Christmas, so hurry up and sign up today to make sure that we can get yours in as a gift. All right, without further ado, we're going to head to the interview with Professor David Wood. Professor David Wood, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. So you come, highly recommended, from one of my mentors and close friends, uh, Dr. Zhang Wang, who said, if you want to talk to somebody that understands real-world peace negotiations on the ground, how do you actually make peace um, uh, possible with different groups of warring people, then you should talk with David. And so here we are. You're a very busy man. Where are you right now? And uh, talk a little bit about what you do day to day. So I've just got into London. I'm here for a, a week and then I'll move on to Doha and I'll do a circuit of the Middle East. So I'll spend a bit of time in Jordan, a bit of time in Lebanon, a bit of time in Yemen and so on. So it's an opportunity just to keep my understanding up to date of the different conflict dynamics and support those actors who are, who are working through conflict. Day to day, it's difficult to describe, um, but I think what's interesting about the work that I do, is like this golden thread between those people who live on the ground in conflict and how they manage the challenges that that poses all the way up to the national authorities and how they kind of develop visions for the future, how they 
they strategize for overcoming conflict, all the way to the international community and how they plan for delivering aid into these difficult conflict arenas. So it's a it's a nice kind of diverse cross section of the human, the kind of the national political and the international aid world. I'm quite interested in all this. Like uh, longtime listeners will know that I worked at the World Bank and for a long time I was definitely interested in doing the international organization thing. And then I got in there and realized it is not uh, what you think it's going to be when, when you get there. So you're kind of in between these two worlds. For somebody that has no connection, right, they're, they're farming in Nebraska right now, how would you describe the world of international organizations and how they impact things like peace talks in Yemen? I mean, that's such a different question, difficult question, because um, the world of international development is, is very highly contested. There's this idea that we provide neutral aid, this, this good aid into places of fragility, where there's violence or where there's underdevelopment. However, aid always has a political resonance. And so most international aid actors are political in nature, and they develop their aid programming based upon their political position. Just a basic uh, example of that, in Syria at the moment, there's a conversation around whether we should be, be building cities damaged by war, whether we should be supporting agricultural development, which is a critical thing within Syria. And there are those who say, no, we can't do that, because to do that would recognize the Damascus victory. And hence, the, the aid that's going to Syria is very much constrained by humanitarian mandate or profile. So the idea is we only deliver on the basic needs of people rather than trying to help them help themselves you know that that classic the the difference between do you catch fish for someone or do you help someone to learn how to catch catch fish so humanitarianism is you provide the fish development work is you're you're teaching people how to catch the fish themselves so when you're going to a place like yemen i mean for most people including myself that is the edge of the world, right? That's a place that is locked in um, a, a different time altogether. How does somebody even become a person that can travel to Yemen, let alone do anything in that culture? It's, it's difficult. I suppose it's hard for me to describe it now because there's been a process of really kind of developing my reputation, my networks, the ability to kind of negotiate these kind of conflict dynamics and that takes time and honestly i just got lucky when i was younger so i just by chance i was i managed to work for a good organization in southeast europe and the caucuses and then i was in georgia during the 2008 war over over south Ossetia, as so the republic of georgia rather than obviously georgia and the united states and then then in 2011, I started a peace-building organization, which was literally me in a rucksack going into Libya after the Arab Spring, trying to help community leaders to overcome communal violence. And I just got really lucky. You know, looking back, I shouldn't have done it. It's dangerous. It was a silly thing to do. But having that experience is then a kind of a springboard for doing it repeated times. I mean, this sounds insane. What, what do you mean you took a rucksack and you went into Libya? Like, what, what draws a person to go do something like that? If you look at, say, the what we call the Arab Spring, the set of uprisings in the Middle East from 2011 onwards, they, they were really a revolution for the world. This was a big opportunity to overcome um, 
authoritarian regimes to put democracy at the heart of the M Middle Eastern um, governance. And it was really a make or break moment for the world, really. And so if you, you care about the world, at that point, you say, I want to be involved. I want to make a difference at this point. And I just had enough experience of working on peace building to be able to throw myself in. And it was a question of meeting with some Libyans overseas, them talking to their authority representatives to get me visas, me getting on the ground, talking to the kind of militia leaders, talking to the armed group leaders, to the, um, the new government revolutionaries and community leaders, and them just trusting me. And that then provided an opportunity to, to work with a set of these leaders over four or five years. And so what do you do when you start working with militia leaders and people that were, I mean, they're prepared to kill other people in, in their pursuit of justice or freedom or whatever their perspective is, what are you doing to bring them to the table and get them to do anything at all? Yeah, but it's interesting you say that. Um, that when you think about a militia leader, you're automatically thinking about someone who's willing to kill for their, their, their hopes, their dreams, their future. But I believe that every person also wants to be seen as a good person. They want their legacy to endure. They have real hopes, genuine hopes for their families, for their, their communities, for the nations that they're part of. And it's about kind of tapping into that, that that desire to be part of the good change, to be part of the positive world, to be seen to be part of that, which I think all of us want to be. We all want to be good. No matter how much we say we don't care about how people think about us, we all want to be seen to be good, I think. So that's kind of like one of the kind of the key entry points, I think, just to connect with people on a human level, to ask them what they're trying to achieve and then to, to work with them to, to try and get there. And so when you're working with them, what, what do you do? You bring them together and say, we're going to have you talk with your mortal enemy or like, how, how does this work? Yeah, well, this is where you come back to the kind of the development side. So I think what we know from peace building work, as we call it, or dialogue work or conflict prevention work, that talk for talk's sake is just not useful. People have to feel that there's going to be a positive result at the end of it. They need to feel that their time is well spent within that. Also, because everyone has this kind of political capital. If you're a community leader, you need to deliver something for your community and you only have so much time to do that. And your ability to be a leader depends on how you use your time. Think of it like, you know, a, a local ele uh, elected representative in the US. They need to deliver for their community if they're going to get reelected. Um, so it's around having a very clear offer. Um, for them. And that's where the development side comes in. So some of the great successes I've been part of or assisted have been, for example, when international aid agencies have said, look, we will give you a certain amount of money to redevelop your area if you can deal with some of the conflict. So suddenly they've got an incentive. They've got a practical thing that's there, you know, that's th that they can um, hold on to, that they can kind of rally around. So I think it's about having that practical thing. And then the rest of it is basically change management. You know, you're talking with people who are leaders of, of their own organizations around resetting their strategies around getting the people behind them to agree with them and being just more effective in, in delivering on their goals. There's a whole bunch of directions we can go with this. Absolutely, One of them yeah. that, uh, that strikes me is, uh, are, are you just an independent actor here? How is it that you get tapped in and that you get to participate with the international organizations to be the representative there? Well, I mean, there's a kind of a nuance there. So I suppose 
previously I was the head of an organization. So I was the director of an international peace building organization. So I also had this kind of the support mechanism of the organization. You then have funding from donors. So we had a lot of funding from the Swiss government, also some funding from the US government, for example, uh, especially in places like Libya. Um, and that provides you with credibility as well. Uh, at the moment, it's interesting because about three or four years ago, I moved my work under this academic umbrella. So I've seen Hall University where you went and studied this fantastic little creative school on, on the East Coast. And then the rationale becomes that I'm a professor and, and for some reason people trust professors. I'm not sure why, but that kind of gives you this, this enigma of an entry point. But I'm still working with the, the same uh the same funders the same donors in the international community and again that's the reputation it's like any field that you work in when you have a good reputation when people trust you that takes you forward i think so let's talk about what's going on in the world today there's a big difference between what the person on the ground like you sees versus what you know the casual reader of social media or the occasional newspaper or magazine mm. so what's going on in the parts of the world that you're visiting that normal people just wouldn't see or know anything about i mean you're, you're talking about i suppose the complexity of being human you know there's so many parts of that you know the the feelings of trauma kind of the hopes the humor i think th this is actually a key point what often gets lost i think um certainly in a european audience an american audience just how funny people are people are when they go through conflict you know you have all these defense mechanisms and people just have a lot of humor so i can tell a lot of dark stories about people's survival um which you know often we don't see but you know these guys are incredibly funny um so i think the humor the creativity you have to be very creative to learn to live in places of conflict. How do you work out how to get your daily needs met? How do you work out who to talk to, how to avoid getting shot? This is a kind of a creative processes of, of survival. So we, we miss a lot of that human story, I think. Um, and then I, I suppose from, from my own perspective, what we, we don't see is just the the negative influence of international aid or international actors within these settings because what you're talking about really is a long time development process so there's an organization called the organization for economic cooperation develop who looked at revolutions and wars around the world and they did a basic analysis that every time you have a revolution or a war you need about 30 to 40 years for it to stabilize, to, to normalize. You need a couple of generations of people getting used to simple things like a government, a government that is less corrupt or getting used to democratic processes. We can't just turn the switch on and that's what we try and do. And we often do it very badly. I mean, one of the reasons, in my own humble opinion, that uh, Afghanistan has turned into such a quagmire was the way that we delivered aid was reinforced corruption processes that actually meant we were never going to have a successful outcome in a place like um, like uh, Afghanistan, because then the Taliban have just this massive message of the international actors are reinforcing corruption, we're against corruption. And they won a lot of the, the public through that kind of profiling. Yeah, and that's exactly how they came to power to begin with. I had the good fortune, yeah. probably the biggest part of my graduate school was who I lived with. And uh, I lived with this guy from Afghanistan. He's a Fulbright wow. scholar. 
And uh, he pointed out the reason the Taliban welcomed were welcomed in by the villagers to begin with is that the government that was there was so corrupt. They, there were no judges they could go to. There was no and people will not stand to not have justice. They will either uh, go to a strong man and, and give that strong man the power or they will turn into their own mob justice. But people won't feel like they can't. Um, corruption uh, corrodes all the way down. And, and uh, Absolutely. I, I agree with you. And and it's funny because, you know, the telling of what was going on in Afghanistan was, you know, we're on the side of the good guys. We're putting the good guys in power. But from afar, it's nearly impossible to know um, who, who you're handing money over to. Absolutely. That's cor completely correct. And I think, you know, for most people who work in international aid, they really do want to be on the side of the angels. They do want to do good. So there is very very rare that you have malintent, that someone is purposefully trying for things to go wrong. So it's just a question of misjudgments about how long these things take, about what's important. You know, we, we were saying because of our own important ideas, for example, about women's rights, that's what we need to push on. Now, as someone from England who now works on the US, I believe that's correct. That is right. We need women's rights and equality. In a place like Afghanistan, however, the priority was anti-corruption do the basics right then we'll get to that later down the line so it's really tough when we want to do well to know the balance between our own ideas of what's right our own morality and what's going to work within the places where we're we're looking to do right and that's that's just a tough tough call i think over time yeah, and I would say that uh, there's a selection pressure for where the big schools are that allow people to get into some of these international organizations, right? They're along the uh, eastern coast of the United States. They're in um, d different parts of Europe. And that creates uh, the, the type of person that ends up getting into the international organization has already been surrounded by a certain set of ideas and a certain way of thinking about problems such that they don't even know that there is another way to think about it because everywhere they turn every person they talk to agrees with this type of thinking so i agree with you this definitely um the majority of the vast preponderance of it is not malintent it's just only one way of looking at things to the extent that you almost believe there is no other way to see things yeah absolutely it's very interesting you're saying that because before i moved to to Seton hall i actually went on a couple of motorcycle adventures across the United States. So I, I drove from Miami across to Los Angeles and acro across the south, and then I drove back through the middle. And I love the rural areas, the so-called rural areas. They're still developed by international standards. But, you know, going through kind of a Utah or a Georgia, these are, or a Tennessee, these are fantastic places. And actually, when I was thinking about Moving to the US, I was looking at universities in those kind of states, but it would just be so disconnected from the international system, which is based around the New York, kind of Washington area, a little bit of Boston, a little bit of Los Angeles, but that's really too far away from, from Europe. So that's all kind of looking towards the Asia side. So yeah, you, you do have that real geographic divide and opportunities, I think, within the US to become part of kind of the international development world. That's definitely the case, which is a shame because you have expertise. Um, this is a bit of a sidetrack, and I'll come back to your point in a moment. But I remember about five or no, about 10 years ago, I was talking with one of the old, old hands of international humanitarian response. So he was there in the 70s and 80s, responding to kind of the wave of um, 
of natural disasters within kind of within the with the African area, all the famines and so on. Um, and what he said is, when we started, you know, the humanitarian world as it exists at the moment, it was people with skills. We brought in doctors, farmers, construction workers. We needed to have those skills to be able to provide support and assistance to people within these contexts. Whereas now we get a lot of graduates. So we have a lot of people that don't have practical skills, but have been taught how to write and think, which is in an academic style, which is also very important. But that's actually, we're, we're kind of being starved of those practical skills a little bit, if you see what I mean. Oh, I saw this in the Peace Corps, hardcore. Like uh, when yeah. my dad was in the Peace Corps, you really had to prove you had some physical skills in order to be Absolutely. able to get in there. And now the Peace Corps is really designed or oriented around uh, were you the top of your class? Were you a good student? Did, or did you participate in these civic activities? You're not getting bonus points for I showed cattle or I knew how to do a <laughs> bunch of uh, fixing of electrical fence. Yeah, yeah, no, you're right. You're right. That, that's right. And, and for for the, my specific corner of the world of international development, which is this peace building, conflict management world, what you really need above everything else is interpersonal skills and the ability to be compassionate, to empathize, to walk with and talk with those people who you probably don't agree with. And that's very, very rare. So again, what I see coming into my world is a lot of people who are good analysts. They get the theory, but they might not get the people. And that's that's a, that's going to be a struggle going forward if we continue in that di direction. So I'm hoping for a bit of a revolution back to the practical skill sets. Um, but then the challenge is how you integrate that because we have you know, a very developed, in the US and, and Europe, very developed university system, which do, do suck in a lot of these very capable, competent intellectuals, but aren't perhaps tapping into those who have the practical skills to go with it. Yeah, and there's a whole thing about like who who gets into these schools and what do you have to do to get into the schools? And I think uh, I have thought because I wasn't aware of how the agricultural system in the United States works, but basically every single state um, yeah. has their own ag school. And then within those ag schools, they basically have their own little world. Yeah. And uh, I have long thought if I were going to be um, moving my graduate program in a direction, I would go try and use the ag schools as the feeder schools to my diplomacy program. Um, if you at all could, because those kids are just so much different than uh, than what you get out of just just uh, your private schools like where I came from. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting because that also meets the need. Because if you think about it, someone like me, I've never done agriculture. You know, I'm, from, I'm a city boy. I'm from London. I've, uh, as, as I was joking with you before, I thought that, you know, hamburgers came from the supermarket. I didn't realize they were attached to an animal till I was about 18 or 19. Um, so I have no idea of the process, but you're putting me into a position in mostly underdeveloped countries because the places where the conflict happens are usually underdeveloped. And I'm often mediating between farmers or are mediating around agricultural crop cycles. And I don't know what I'm doing. So I know the, the people skills, but I don't know the kind of practice. A really good example is after the 2008 conflict over South Ossetia in Georgia, um, the, the Russians and the South Ossetians established what they call the administrative boundary line, which was the line of control basically between the Georgian government and the, the Russians and the South Ossetians. Now this, this actually those split across agricultural farmlands. And so, and a big question was around, uh, around maintenance of the irrigation system to allow for proper 
crop cycle management. See, I'm using words I don't understand already. You're on. And, you're doing fine. Yeah. Okay, good. And so my role there was to go and facilitate agreements between the community groups on each side and then with the Russian um, peacekeepers, as they called them, around allowing for Georgians to travel across the administrative boundary line at the right time to do the right kind of work to kind of renovate. So, you know, to, to have someone with agricultural skills at that point would be fantastic. Um, but And that's also an example, if you remember, we were talking about focus on the practical. So we were really focusing on the practical stuff rather than the big, where do you see your country in 30 years time stuff. Um, and then if you look at the biggest humanitarian catastrophe in the world at the moment, which is Yemen, 25 million people need food aid every day. Now, this is huge. Um, we've been providing food, humanitarian food aid now for five years, and we're still going through these peaks and troughs of famine because humanitarian, food, humanitarian aid doesn't solve the problem. So we need to do good agricultural projects in these places. And again, bringing the skills in to do that with still being savvy around the diplomacy side would be would be very, very useful. Yeah, I remember. So I have a, a good friend um, named Brian Mose, and he's a cattle rancher from South Dakota. And he's like the slow talking South Dakotan that you would imagine. Very like just very gentle. And he said yeah. something one time that was really profound to me. He said, you know, um, livestock is a universal language. If you know how to speak about livestock, it doesn't really matter. You can get past any language barrier because you, yeah, if you yeah. know how to care for animals. You can relate with somebody else. And I don't think that's ever been more apparent to me than during this conversation that you're you're right, because the the person that understands the challenges of raising animals can communicate with the other one. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's the case in most conflicts that we face in the modern age, that they're mostly ones uh, based around deprivation, underdevelopment, where there's insufficient products, where the costs are too high. So being able to create functioning agricultural systems and markets is where it's at. And that's what's happening in Yemen at the moment. It's not it's an interesting the case. It's not going to be the case in, in say, 50 years. There's uh, some interesting work that demonstrates that by that point, the majority of the world's population will have moved into urban areas. And you'll have to say a Mumbai of, I think it is 40 million people. You know, so at, at that point, most of these kind of conflicts are going to be urban nature. But at the moment, they are very kind of uh, rural, rurally situated, I think. Well, so you're with the uh, Center for Peace Studies. Why don't you talk a little bit about this? Because uh, it's a very interesting, um, it's an interesting group that you're with. Yeah. And we've brought you on as as one of our fellows as well, which we're very proud of. So, you know, trying to bring back the kind of the old graduates to become part of the future, which is exciting for us. Um, yeah, so I suppose the Center for Peace and Conflict Studies is there to do one thing and do it well, which is to bridge this practical experience of mediation on the ground with all the theory and the policymaking that goes on within the political circles and within academia. We want the policymaking to be a better fit for the realities of working on conflict on the ground. Because at the moment, there is a bit of a disconnect. And that means that we do something which is odd in a university, that we actually run mediation processes on the ground. So Professor Zhang Wang, who, who you know runs processes between the US and China um, on dialogue around, for example, preventing military escalation in the South China Seas. 
I run processes uh, across the Middle East and North Africa. So, for example, last year I was mediating um, between the two governments in Libya on a joint national COVID-19 response. Um, and it's about taking those experiences and bringing them back to the policymaking world. So that's what we're really looking to do. And what that does mean as well is really challenging some of these kind of thinking that you were very politely describing as probably East Coast dominant, kind of more liberal leaning thinking as perhaps being less useful, less impactful within the external world that we're, look, we're looking at. Um, and that can be controversial. So some of the work that we're doing at the moment is very controversial. Um, I, I mean, I can kind of dive into it if you want. Yeah, to. man, yeah, go. I, I, yeah, go I can, hard. For, I can talk forever on this. So one of the, for example, one of the big things which is really relevant in America at the moment is how do you remember the past? How do you talk about the past where you might have different ideas of how good the past was? You know, if you're outside of America, for example, what always struck you about America up until, say, five years ago was how proud America was of its past, this sense of having a shared understanding from the revolution onwards around the, the US's state in the place in the world as a beacon for democracy, a beacon for liberal thinking, for freedoms, and the pride within that, which seems to have been shaken up over the last five years or so, with some people thinking, being less proud in the past, with others being still incredibly proud. So that's, a, that's an example of how you deal with the past. In places of violent conflict, this is more pressing. So for example, if you have the overthrow of an of a authoritarian regime like you did in Iraq, the question is how do you deal with the officials from the last regime? Do you imprison them? Do you, do you cut them off from public life? Do you give them the same opportunities as everyone else? So you remember the past in different ways, through stories, or through um, kind of legal actions that you take. Whether you pull down a monument or you keep the monument up is about how you deal with the past. And what often happens is that people emphasize the justice part. You know, there's a sense of injustice for the past, and there's a desire to have justice for the past in the, in the present moment. And that can lead to a lot of bad decision-making. So what we're trying to do at the center, for example, is promote more nuanced thinking about how to deal with the past that balances, for example, justice with other concerns such as making sure that you're not creating polarization in society in the modern moment, making sure you're not increasing hate in the modern moment, making sure that you're, um, you're actually going to have kind of an outcome that's effective for everyone rather than something which really divides. And that goes against a lot of people who are, who are more on the kind of the justice side of the camp. I'm um, a huge fan of Zhang Wang's work. You know, he he radically changed my life. And yeah. I think one of the things that he is so good at doing is breaking down. So recently I've been reading the philosopher Rene Girard quite a bit. So this oh, okay. philosopher, I don't know. Are you familiar with his mimetic no, theory? No, no. So tell me. So his concept is that human beings, there's so much in the world that we don't know what to want. And that it's actually a much better thing or is uh, a way to be efficient is for the human brain to look around and say, what is it that other people want? And mm. I, if I want that too, then if I achieve it, then I, you know, get status or I get power or I get mm. the things that I want. And he basically says 
that all of human interaction comes down to mimetic desire. And this is how mobs get started. And that mobs are really around like uh, they, they have to have a feeling of being the victim. And once you take on that thing and you say we are doing mm. righteous good work, then the mob becomes something extra human, right? It becomes beyond just human cognition and you can no longer control it. And so when you're talking about things like a shared history or an understanding of what justice is, this maps exactly to mm. this, this theory, which is saying you have to have more nuance here because as people foam together to become a mob, the it's just it becomes this reoccurring uh, thing that just happens. This group thinks that they were unjustly treated, so they go take some horrible action. This horrible action then makes somebody mistreat, and it just goes on and on and on. And I think that the, what you guys are describing is the only human rational way to remove yourself from this mob mentality that we're so predisposed to yeah very beautifully put you should come and do a couple of classes with me no, I, <laughs> I, I, no you're right and and to to quote some more obscure thinkers i mean one of the the people that influenced me when i was young i studied accidentally russian and i was in kind of russia during the second chechen war just by accident and that's why i got into the world that i'm in at the moment that was 2000 to 2001 um and there's a, a great revolutionary writer called Zamyatin, and he wrote this book called Moi, which is a we, which is a kind of a diary set in the dystopian future once the, the Communist Socialist Party has won. And it was copied a number of times, including by Aldous Huxley in his Brave New World. And the, the basic idea that Zamyatin has is that we always move between the energy, the desire to change, and then the entropy, the desire to then fix the rules for so that the others can't break that. So the person who becomes the revolutionary is ultimately going to be the despot because they're going to try and fix the new set of rules that then people are going to break. So for any of the, the Russian speakers out there, there's a, there's a fantastic anecdote about Zamyatin when he was uh, caught by the NKVD, which are the precursors of the KGB. Um, during the purges by Stalin. So, you know, where they got rid of all the kind of the opposition. And he was a radical revolutionary. And they said, you know, you're against the revolution. And he said, Ya Yobanoya Revolutia, which is something along the lines of, I am the revolution, and just stormed out <laughs> because they were already trying to set the rules and to say who had the right to speak and who didn't. They'd lost the revolutionary moment at that point. So, I mean, that's a kind of an anecdote to get kind of back around to your, your point that from peace practice internationally, we know some very clear things. You know, if you look at the science around how you build peace, we know that you've got to help people overcome group identification. So when people start to think in groups and they start to judge others based on their group identity, then you're in a bad situation because that allows for group judgments and group punishments. This and is the formation of the mob. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And that's why the legal system as it exists within the Anglo-Saxon world is so important because it pushed responsibility away from the group to the individual. You're judged as an individual and your parents and your children and your family are not going to suffer the punishment for your crimes. This is an essential ingredient in overcoming the kind of group identification. So, you know, myself and a colleague, we call this transcending the collective. You've got to allow people to think beyond the collective, to see the other person as an individual in their own right. So we know that you've got to help people think not in group terms, but in individual terms. 
you've got to help people think in complex terms. So what often happens within conflict environments is that you get this kind of idea of the angels and the devils. I'm on the side of the good. They're on the side of the evil. Therefore, it's okay for me to do bad things to that, that person. And so what you then have is this justification for violence and bad actions towards the other because you think they're evil. And you're actually just, it's this cognitive dissonance. You're not seeing how evil you're being within that. Um, and there's some fantastic studies, for example, by an American academic based in Cambridge uh, who demonstrates that you can prevent uh, violent extremists by helping them think in more complex terms to move away from this binary good and bad kind of way of looking at the world. I'm totally with you on this, man. This this goes along with uh, th my most recent way of thinking, which changes all the time. But one of them, Rene Girard, when he's talking about the mob, he yeah. ends up describing some very interesting things, stuff that I had never thought of. He says, you know, the Catholic or not the Catholic, the Christian teaching about Jesus is really in large part trying to dissuade people from joining the mob. And he gives the example of um, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem for the last time, that's when they were laying palms down in front of him, you know, so that way his, his uh, sandals wouldn't even have to get dirty. That same group of people are the ones that just one week later start calling for his death. Mm. And and uh, the story of Peter, when they start saying, Peter, it's you, you know, we know mm. you're with him. He's like, no, I'm not with him. I don't, I don't want to be a part of, uh, I wasn't with Jesus and he denies it. The, all of these Bible stories leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus was about individual culpability and the natural pull towards joining the mob, which I had just never thought of, but that the Christian mythology is really designed around helping people to transcend that so they could get away from uh, thinking, well, if I'm just a part of the group, then I'm not responsible. Yeah, very true. But it's not just Christianity, it's, it's across all religions. So if you look at the development of Islam, for example, and Muhammad, part of his crusade for want of a better word was to stop the tribes fighting each other you know he was able to transcend the tribal violence within the arab peninsula so that people treated each other as each other as, as individuals no matter what tribe they came from so it exists within within buddhism it exists within hinduism it exists within judaism the sense of well being part of a group not being restricted by that group which is an important kind of difference and there's there's a great um kind of English academic who used to be a Catholic nun called Karen Armstrong, who wrote a book called The History of God that looked at how most religions have come out of these important social change moments. Um, and then she describes how the golden thread between all of them is this idea of compassion, really caring for the other, no matter what they've done to you, which we think of as very Christian, but actually cuts across so many different religions. And for me, that's the third kind of pillar of learning that we have, you know, you've got to help people overcome the collective so they think in individual terms you've got to help them see things in complex terms and you also have to enable them to care to have compassion for someone not so that they ultimately give in because you should you must have read kind of uh william uri's getting to yes this oh, classic, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you always want to keep your your objective but if you care about the other you can also potentially keep the relationship and if you really try to understand the other you're going to get better at your negotiation because you understand what the other's trying to achieve so yeah. compa 
So compassion helps you, basically. I mean, there's no doubt if you can describe for the other person in as high fidelity or higher fidelity than they can why they think what they think and you're not doing it with judgment, you can watch somebody go from being hyper stressed to then being like melted away. And and it's something my uh, wife and I do all the time, right? Like when, when tensions start getting ratcheted up, I say, okay, let me see if I understand you. And then instead, uh, you know, it's very tempting to do it like in a mocking tone, but if you do it in yeah. a genuine tone and you say this is what i think you're saying this is when conflict goes from being high tension to being like okay he does understand what i'm saying where's the nuance that we need to met out the difference yeah absolutely absolutely so coming back to your question what does the day-to-day -day life look like so one of the ways that you do that is you you kind of you get people to argue from the other position and they hate it to begin with then they get used to it then they start to think about what it means for them you know, what does my argument, their understanding of their position mean for what I should do? Then they start to think about it, what it means for the other. You know, so it's a very powerful tool, this the kind of thinking from another person's perspective. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's why uh, college professors are such a, a, a powerful force in the world. It turns out if you have somebody write a paper that even if they completely disagree with the conclusions, but you say you have to write 800 words on it. If yeah. you come back a week later, their position about how they feel about that can change all the way, like more than a standard deviation. So they can go from being like, I abjectly disagree with this to being like, no, I, I kind of see what the point of that is. And those can be used for for, uh, for good or for for ill, I'm sure, but it's a powerful thing to be able to understand the other. Yeah, no, it is, and it is, and that's. Uh, do, do you like the the singer Nick Cave? Have you ever, ever come across Nick Cave, the Australian? I mean, Nick I'm, I'm familiar guy, of him, but I couldn't tell you any songs. Okay, well, I've got beautiful memories of like seeing Nick Cave in like these old towns in Italy. But anyway, so Nick Cave also writes this fantastic blog where he talks about the importance of avoiding the radical. So he says that within his writing, it's an attempt to be creative. And to be creative, you have to be open to learning and different possibilities. So the creation itself is openness. So if, if you are not open to different perspectives, to learning from the other, then your, your ability to create has, has just dissipated. It's gone. If you think about it, bring it back to the agricultural world like to be good in agriculture i'm sure involves innovation to be innovation means that you're constantly sharing ideas and imagining what ifs what if we did something different and those who are open to ideas and creativity around um, dealing with the land or new types of machinery and so on are going to be better than those who stick to the old principles rigidly so Creativity is just important, whatever field you're in. Yeah. And this is so, you know, in my own experience, so I worked for Monsanto, which, you know, for a lot of people would be seen as this very dark kind of devilish corporation. I've been told. And, uh, yeah. And, and so I was a part of this group. And one of the things that um, we learned about in graduate school in the school of diplomacy was mm. where you sit on uh, at the table determines where you stand on issues. And I used to think, yeah, that's for other people, right? Like who put you at that table changes how you think about the issues. But then I look back on my time at Monsanto and I remember hearing the arguments for why you wouldn't use GMOs or why you wouldn't use pesticides. And the way that I heard those people describing things mm. was always from a, those people are lying. Those people are mm. deceived. Those people are. And yeah, then yeah. once I came out of the organization, so now I know a lot more about agriculture, but I'm no longer at the seat because of Monsanto. 
I don't think that I changed in as much as um, uh, I just started being able to see people's perspectives that I just hadn't been able to see before. And it wasn't like Monsanto was paying me, hey, you should think this way or telling me at all. It's yeah. just that's what naturally happens. And it's really hard to admit to ourselves that all of us are vulnerable to just siphoning down the other side to overly simplistic narratives. And it's really difficult to step away from your tribe and be like, what does that tribe know that I don't know? Because I would be able to learn and, and take innovation and bring them into my own. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And for me then, so this is the kind of the, the fourth pillar of good peace building. So if you think of the first one, transcend the collective, but don't see people as as groups, see them as individuals, humanize them. Kind of the the second one is around uh, compassion and being compassionate. So really caring for the other. Um, I've forgotten one, but it'll come back to me in, that, in a moment. But then this fourth one is around curiosity and really being curious, genuinely curious. And it's like you were saying with your wife, if you're genuinely curious, people know. If you're not genuinely curious and then you can always tell that someone is, is asking a question to get to their end, to get the, to their outcome. Um, and, and like, again, in the world of kind of conflict work, we call this the different zones of listening. You know, zone three is when you're thinking about dinner. Zone two is when you're listening to the other person and you're thinking about what it means for you and what you're going to say next. Zone one is when you're thinking about what the person is saying and then trying to understand what they genuinely mean. So you're focused on them. And we always oscillate between those zones. And the key is to be aware of that, to push ourselves back to zone one, because it's better for us. We're going to learn more, ultimately. Yeah, the uh, the podcast has been a lesson in this, right? It's hundreds and yeah. hundreds of hours of trying to oscillate between like, how am I going to ask the clever question versus like, what is it that this person is actually trying mm. to say? And the, the benefit and probably the curse of a podcast is you can go back and watch and you can say, oh man, I saw like I was definitely in zone two there. I was definitely trying to... to um, not listen, but but just uh, think of what would be creative. So this is changing the subject, but it's something mm. that's really personal to me is I view the conflict within the United States as ratcheting up rather quickly. And I don't I, I think it's a way too simplistic to say it's left versus right or even rural versus urban. But I definitely uh, believe that there is an othering that you can feel going on in the world. When I describe this and compared to your knowledge of, of conflict escalation that's gone on around the world, what do you see when you look into the United States? I think you're right. Um, again, just a slight anecdote. I can't give you the full anecdote because that would be breaking trade secrets. But I and Zheng Wang were training um, a foreign government's Ministry of Foreign Affairs in peace programming. And we were taken into the crisis room and they have a, a map of the world and they've graded it in the usual kind of traffic lights, grading schemes about where the crisis is going to happen. The US was up there in a crisis flashpoint. Now, along there with Assyria or Yemen, according to their grading system. It was very interesting to see that. Yeah, so no, I completely agree. I completely agree that you are closer to large scale violent conflict than you believe yourselves to be. And when I say you, I mean generally the, the people in the, the US, because there has been this process of dehumanizing the other. And I'm 
I don't fully understand the edges of how identities are made within the US, but it definitely is along the Republican-Democrat divide. It is along those who feel themselves as more traditional value-based and those who feel themselves as so-called liberal-based. And there is definitely a growing divide there. And the, that's okay, generally, because as you, you'll hopefully remember from your class, conflict is good if it's managed well, because it allows you to explore different ideas and come up with solutions. The critical is about management though. And the challenge for me is that Americans are starting to stop trusting their conflict management institutions. People are stopping trusting the democratic process. And that's on both sides. There are kind of mirroring accusations around malpractice on the other side. People are starting to stop trusting the media. And they've probably gone a long, long way past that now. And these are critical institutions within any national uh, constituency for managing differences. And for me, the kind of the, the four, four pillars are you've got to have a media that allows you, exposes you to the other and allows for genuine debate. You've got to have a legal system that people trust to provide justice in a fair manner. You've got to have a democratic process which people trust and they're willing to abide by the outcomes, even if they don't fall uh, in their kind of sense. And you've got to have a good education process that everyone agrees with. And that's often interesting that people think about education before governance, but education is because the way that we learn together allows us to trust these systems together. So I do think you're at a flashpoint. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I mean, I think all of your institutions that you pointed out were really good. And actually, as you were talking about the media, it reminds me when I was in Kenya, um, just before the riots broke out and they had to clear out all of the Peace Corps volunteers that were there. Mm. I remember like thinking um, that the newspapers were comical, right? It was like yeah. hilarious to me just how inflamed every single issue was. And, uh, you know, you'd look at the U.S. papers at the time and you'd be like, yeah, they, they have their own points of view, but nothing like this, nothing of like the, um, you know, the guy that flies down on the ground in the soccer match when he was just barely grazed and like rolling around on the ground. But yeah. that seems like what's happening. And even if you just perceive it's the other guy that's doing it, they perceive your guy is doing it as well. It's just so yeah. hard to see it on your own side. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But it's interesting you can see it. What for you is allowing you to see this that perhaps other Americans is stopping other people from seeing it? What can help other Americans to see that mirroring process of othering, as you called it, that perhaps, uh, you know, that you're seeing? I'm in an unusual place in that the podcast has allowed me to start a network and the network is filled with very intelligent people that live all over the United States, even some people in Canada. And it's a little like going um, to church, not in the sense of religion, but in the fact that people come together. So you have like a book club or you have we have a debate program called the Circular Firing Squad or we just share ideas in this network. And mm. what you see are people that are wildly different, right? You've got the the Mormon farmer and the woman with a transsexual uh, son, right? And so these people are having conversations, but they're all polite with one another, right? Yeah, the number yeah. is small enough. It's, I don't know, 80 people or something like that. So it's way below the Dunbar number. So people are open and honest and you see these different perspectives and you think like, ah, well, that's, 
you know, that's Anna. She's got a perspective. I don't automatically agree with it. But I think that our current culture is set up such that we don't have very many heterogeneous mixtures of people. And uh, COVID probably only exacerbated this by orders of magnitude, right? We don't just have serendipitous collisions with people that view things differently than us that we have to stay polite with because we're going to see them again and again and again. Yeah, that sounds right. I love the fact that you said even Canada. (laughs) 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 You know, I think that's right. And again, if you want to put that in academic terms, this is what we is often referred to as social capital. So the idea that, again, horizontal exchange between people as equals allows focused on a thing which is of joint importance allows for a sharing of of ideas and perspectives and humanization of the other um so the idea of social capital was actually i think generated by an american academic called glenn lowry and it was very much actually interestingly about um, how persons of color might not be doing so well economically was perhaps because they lacked that interaction with people from different backgrounds that would give them different perspectives and allow them to learn. But then it was taken on by this guy called Robert Putnam, one of the great uh, social scientists within America, um, who wrote a couple of books uh, on social capital. And one of them was called Bowling Alone. And the idea of Bowling Alone, it seemed to chart this diminishing involvement by Americans within group activities that, you know, in the 70s or whenever it was, people would go bowling in groups where you would cut across and you'd meet people with different perspectives, whereas now people are likely to go bowling alone. So participation in parent-teacher associations, participation in your local community circle, all of this has, has, has decreased. And the great hope was that social media would allow that to increase again. But the challenge is that it, social media doesn't work the same way as physical gatherings. You know, so you're able to, to solidify differences on social media because you can actually gather around those people who are the same and you don't need to interact with the other. So, yeah, I think you pointed to a critical thing. It's about increasing the number of organizations, gatherings, interactions that cut across divides. So in the U.S., I'm a member of a couple of motorcycle groups you know, Obviously not the hardcore people, more the hipsters. (laughs) And we have people on all sides of the debate, genuinely. And in a couple of groups, it's too sensitive still, and they say, no politics when we ride. In some groups, it's okay. But you need more of that. You need people coming around a shared interest with people from different perspectives. Now, one of the big worries for me in the US, if what you're describing is true and there is this different in living within the countryside and urban areas, and you have different focuses and interests, then then how do you bridge that? Because that's such a big divide, potentially. So I I don't know. I mean, I think this uh, concept, there's a, there's a guy I had on the podcast named Sam Oburia, and he talks about social technology and the very things you were describing, you know, whether it's the PTA or church or mm. the Rotary Club, um, we think like, oh, these can always, these will always be there, right? Like this mm. is a, this is, but what his hypothesis is somehow humans, as they were innovating, they came up with these social groups that allowed us to come together and allowed us to have this fabric. And it wasn't just yeah, split yeah. along your racial lines or your ethnic lines or your religious lines. There were other reasons people would gather together, but as people have found, oh, it's a lot more efficient to skip that meeting. It's a lot more easy for me to have my, my dope dopamine hits of meeting with other people done online, those yeah. things have broken apart. And Robert's rules of order doesn't make a meeting. 
marketing, right? Like yeah, it's, yeah. it's only the way to tell you how to facilitate it. And without people finding reasons to come together and yeah. this like massive accumulation of power in these very small areas, whether it's, you know, the DC, New York thing, or just larger cities in general, I, I don't know. I, I think we will likely have to invent a new technology that allows us to transcend this because on, on the current trajectory, people won't be able to met out their problems over social media, which will cause real conflict in the, in the streets. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because there seems to be two thought processes amongst the limited exposure that I have to American kind of political thinking between those who are focused on the union and want it to survive and are thinking about the ways of overcoming this divide. And those who are starting to think, well, maybe there's a natural split here. Maybe we should, and I hear that, you know, I sometimes listen to the Young Turks, which is far on the left, and they say these things. I then listen to Ben Shapiro, and he's quite on the right. And I hear the same thing being said there, that there's, this is an open question now, which, which is you know, worrying. We, we should be rallying around these shared institutions to work out how to make them work. For, for me, I mean, if I was kind of brought in to help this thinking within the US, I'd be looking to get the political leaders together and say, choose one thing that you're going to build trust on. And for me, it would be the democratic process. Allow people to trust that when their vote is made, that it's been done fairly and that the outcome is fair. That's it. Just focus on that. Nothing else. You know, to really have one success story that everyone is going to say, this really works for us. Because that's when, you know, people often try and do too much. They try and fix all the problems. Take one thing, do it well, move on to the next the next issue. I think in that cha the challenging thing about doing it now is that we haven't had a breakdown that has caused enough pain to bring people to the table, right? There, there is something to the, to the, um, needing people to feel threatened enough or mm. that, that, um, you know, annihilating the other side won't allow you to actually win. Right. I mean, I think that's, if you look at the Northern Ireland situation, like they, yeah. they could firmly come to the conclusion that total annihilation of the other side was just not going to happen. But I don't think people in the U.S. believe that right now. I think they genuinely both sides believe if I can just amass a larger group of people, we'll be able to conquer the other side. Maybe we'll change the Democratic rules so it's rule by majority. Maybe we'll cut off food supplies or we're the ones with the, mm. you know, the weaponry. And mm. so I don't think right now that you do. I mean, I'm open to you disagreeing with this. Do you think you could bring a leader to the table? Wouldn't they be risking too much? by trying to capitulate before the problems have gotten really bad? Yeah, but Vance, that's what a leader is. A leader is someone who sees a problem and advances and is creative with it, who is transformative with it. That's what a leader is. We shouldn't be looking at other things and calling it leadership. That's not leadership. That might be good management at best, but it's not leadership. A leader, a leader deals with the problem by bringing people together, by being curious, by being compassionate. So I think you might have a leadership issue slightly, um, but yeah, no, everything, you know, everything you you said is is kind of is very true. This this sense of you need to have a break that's big enough that allows people to realise that something needs to be done. So I've seen a couple of these as you have. So last year the wave of protests. This January, kind of the events on Capitol Hill and how that's being portrayed. These are. These are not insignificant moments. They should be the calling card for good leaders to set the ball in motion to deal with the problem ahead of time. You know, in the 
world of conflict management, as I'm sure you remember, we, we call this the hurting stalemate. So that when the parties recognize that they cannot win unilaterally, that they need the other side, and that their contentious approach, their aggressive approach is only hurting both sides, that's when people come to the table. So you need a hurting stalemate. That's part of the theory about good conflict management. And you need people to see there's a hurting stalemate. And then you also need the optimism, the readiness, the sense of a solution can be made as well. So you need both of those, those parts to, to be in place. Yeah, so I, I feel that you are at that point already. You know, this isn't a small divide. These are significant issues that have been manifesting now for two years, and you need leadership on this. Oh, that's interesting. I think this uh, from the inside of the water, the water doesn't feel that hot right now. And maybe it is hot. I mean, like it definitely feels like it's getting warmer, but it doesn't feel like we are um, at a point where people are like, oh, I better I better go meet with the other side because my side might get wiped out just as easily as we might wipe them out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, being in a society in conflict is much like seeing your son or your daughter grow up when you're with them you don't see it so much whereas if you go away for six months and come back you see the development so i had a similar experience going into lebanon so i was in lebanon last last november where things weren't so bad i went back again uh, in june or july this year and there's a full economic crisis now for people living in the context they'd normalized it they'd normalized fighting at petrol stations they'd normalized people not having enough water and for me this is like guys this is a crisis point <laughs> you know we need to think about this a little bit differently yeah so yes it is it, very much like that you can't you can't feel the water temperature change when you're in the bath so let's uh let's wrap up by um by hearing where do you think the uh, center for peace and conflict studies will go over the next year what do you guys hope to accomplish in the near term and and you guys just brought mm. on some fellows talk a little bit about that well, I suppose the fellows are interesting that we have some very experienced people working in the international world. So, for example, there's a guy called Andrew Chatham, who was basically helping to manage the stabilization facility in Iraq that came in to rebuild the cities damaged by um, kind of the war during the ISIS period. And he's now at kind of a senior management position in USIP. So we have those kind of backgrounds. And then we have people who are more US focused, such as yourself. And so for us, I think what we're trying to do is, is also just test the water, whether we can bring it some learning back into the US that might be of value here. So that's kind of one thing. The second thing, though, is to more proactively just challenge policymaking internationally. We've had some big failures. We've had Afghanistan. We've had Syria. We've got to learn from this. You know. We have to learn from the failures, which aren't from malintent. They're perhaps from, from not doing so well. And for me, just as a kind of a throwaway comment, I mean, part of that is the classic mission creep. With international aid and international organization, there's been a tendency to try and do everything. And I think we need to get back to being good at what we do well. If you're a peace-building organization, all you care about is mediating between parties. If you're providing water assistance, all you're worried about is getting, making sure the taps are flowing, you know, getting back to the, the core business of, of what it means to work internationally. Well, Professor David Wood, um, I'm sure there'll be some uh, parents that are hoping their kids that were in uh, school, maybe in their ag schools, are thinking about reaching out. If somebody wanted to get a hold of you to learn more about what you're doing or send their kids your way to hear about opportunities in this world, how would they do that? Uh, well, I don't 
have Twitter or any of, the, of social media because it's a bit difficult for a person in my line of work. But there, there's the email, david.wood at shu.edu. There's a website, um, which I can't remember of, but I'm sure I'll, I'll send it to you. You send it to me, I'll put it in the show notes. Exactly, yeah. And then I'm happy to talk to anyone. I'm interested. The other reason I moved into academia is I'm really interested in helping people to learn as much as possible. And that's what I really enjoy. So I'm interesting to talk to anyone. And then just in terms of what helps them get in, learn a language. Earlier age, get your son, your daughter to learn a language. It's going to be helpful for, for five, six years down the line. And encourage them to be curious. Well, that sounds great. David, thank you so much for coming on. Zhang Wang did not disappoint. He was dead on that you were going to be a great conversation. I hope we have you on again soon. Love to. Thank you for having me. <laughs>